This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Today's big question, how historically accurate are the Gospels? Today's show is the first of a two-part conversation where we ask this big question to Professor Craig Evans. Craig is the John Bassagno Distinguished Professor of Christian Origins at Houston Theological Seminary in the United States. He's a New Testament scholar, a prolific author and popular speaker. He's well known for his contribution to the work on the Gospels, the historical Jesus, the Dead Sea Scrolls and archaeology of the New Testament. And he joins me now, Dr. Evans, welcome to Bigger Questions. Oh, thank you. Good to be with you. It's great that you could join us. Now, you seem to love history, the historical Jesus, the Dead Sea Scrolls, archaeology. So what made you love history so much? Oh, I think it started with childhood, really. I liked stories. And uh, I, as, when I was in high school, I became a very avid reader. Mm-hmm. And I loved to read uh, historical fiction. Okay. And, and, you know, and I mean, it has some deep, serious history in it. And people like Conan Doyle and Raphael Sabatini you know, and uh, Alexandre Dumas and others like that. I just loved it. I ate it up. Yeah. I became much more interested in the history of the early church, Jesus, the uh, disciples, what's related in the Gospels and the Book of Acts, and it just went from there. Mm-hmm. So maybe unpack that a bit more. You, you had a love of history, but then your faith deepened. So what was the connection then uh, between the two? Well, I saw the connection because uh, Christian faith is not philosophy. It's not just a way of life, a decision to live a certain way. And people make philosophical commitments and ethical commitments, and that's just fine. But Christian faith uh, at its center is a story. And it's it's a conviction of certain things that have happened uh, in, in the past. And this you could go all the way back into Israel's ancient history. Uh, parts of which are recorded in what we call the Old Testament. But as a Christian, of course, it's very centered on Jesus's life, uh, his teaching, his activities, his death, resurrection, the early church, what they said about him. And so my interest as a as person that was coming of age and developing Christian faith was to ask, okay, uh, how reliable are these Gospels? Is this a, a history? And by that point, I was pursuing history. I was reading history in university, and that was becoming my major. I didn't know at the time where graduate studies might take me, but I seriously entertained the possibility of becoming a professor of, of history. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to pursue that further and further. So I read uh, books on classical history, but also not ancient history necessarily, but history in Europe in the last few hundred years, that sort of thing. And what are the criteria? How do we evaluate our sources, manuscripts, Mm. and so on? What role does archaeology play? All those kinds of things were of great interest to me. Mm. And so you started applying that then to the quest for the historical Jesus. That's right. And I was still a university student, and I read a book that talked about, it was a book published in the late 60s, on the continuing quest of the historical Jesus. I didn't know it at the time. I learned this later, but there was this new quest of the historical Jesus that scholars were talking about in the 50s and 60s. It was very Germanic in its perspective, and uh, this book was talking about it. And I was fascinated because he was citing sources, testimonia. He was evaluating them 
what critics of Christianity said and what we could infer from it, uh, what defenders were saying, how the Gospels could be critically uh, looked at, and archaeology such as it was then, which at several important points corroborated things in the Gospels. I found that fascinating. I found it very reassuring, but I found it fascinating. And of course, as the years have gone on, uh, thanks to the Six-Day War and all of Jerusalem is now in Israeli authority, archaeology can take place all over the place safely. Mm -hmm. uh, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, while I was a young scholar uh, getting started in the 1980s, all of the scrolls became available. And, oh man, it just blew the lid off. And so, plus additional discoveries relating to papyri. So it just keeps building up. And so it's just fun. It never seems to to exhaust itself. There's always more to study. And it was that historical correlation. You have a gospel story and it correlates with other sources. It's corroborated by other sources that told me this is not mythology, but it's a very real history. Mm. Well, let's just explore that a bit more because you've said that you enjoyed historical fiction as a child. Uh, and there are some today that would claim that the gospels and the, and the book of Acts are merely historical fiction, that they're not actually re recording accurately recording real history in the world. They're just um, uh, historical fiction, they're ancient fiction that they can't be trusted for historical accuracy. So how, how do you react then to those kind of claims? My first reaction is they must not know the difference then between ancient fiction, and there, there was fiction written in antiquity, and I've read the fiction, the novels, they're fun to read. And, uh, and of course there were histories that were written that were about the same length, some of them, as the gospels about the same length, talking about one of the Roman emperors, for example, and so on. And so we have many points of comparison. You can look at the biographies and histories that were written in late antiquity, and you can look at the fiction, and you can see the difference. And, of course, uh, I know archaeologists who, you know, they have a lot of skin in the game. They recruit 100 people to come at great expense and dig. They want to know where to dig, how to understand what they dig up. They don't want to waste their time. They don't want to waste all these diggers' time, waste a lot of money. And we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars tied up mm. in an archaeological project. And they want to know about the first century. Maybe it directly relates to Jesus and the Gospels or not, it, but it's the first century. And that's a fascinating time leading up to the Jewish rebellion in 66 and what happened to Jerusalem and the temple in the year 70. That's important to them. They don't want to waste their time. They don't want to waste their dollars. And they want to use good sources. Yeah. And they all use Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the book of Acts, and Josephus. They would not do that if the Gospels were mythology, talking about somebody that didn't exist, if the Gospels were so dreadfully inaccurate, you really have no idea who Jesus was or what he said or did. They wouldn't use the Gospels. And I'm talking about archaeologists who are Jewish for the most part. Some of them are Christian. So some of these archaeologists don't have any theological dog in the fight, so to mm. speak. They use the best sources, and they're very pragmatic. How do they know the sources are good? They pay off. If a, if, if a source says there's a road here, or there used to be a Roman encampment here, or there used to be this or that, and they go there and they dig, and there it is, that tells them the source is reliable. And the Gospels come up all the time as reliable sources. Mm. So what then distinguishes, let's say, the, an ancient history from the ancient fiction that you've read? What, what are the differences between them? 
Well, the, the most notable thing is uh, fiction has no corroboration. And so when a fiction writer talks about uh, an adventure and marauding pirates and something happening, a fair maiden carried off, you know, and everybody goes in pursuit, there's no corroboration whatever. Mm. And the way the plot unfolds and it's nail biting and it's exciting. And of course, uh, there, there are literary tours de force that just, you know, they just can't happen. That isn't the way it is at all. Uh, there are actual blunders. There's a lack of verisimilitude and so on. But uh, the fiction is pretty obvious. Then you read Tacitus or Suetonius, who's talking about uh, the history of a given Roman emperor or some other figure, Plutarch writing a biography or whatever. It reads very, very differently. And what uh, recent scholarly work, and some of it's quite recent, uh, just in the last few years, comparisons have been made uh, between the Gospels as biographies or uh, biographies and histories, and uh, Suetonius, Plutarch, and Tacitus, and so on. And the comparisons are rather close. Uh, the, the same style of writing history, the same use of sources, um, purpose for writing, uh, you know, goals, that kind of thing. The correlations are very, very close. Mm. So they read very different from an ancient fiction. You can actually tell the difference just by, by reading it and understanding the, the genres of the ancient world. Well, what I say, what I say to some, whether they're skeptics or not, is why don't you read them? And uh, if you sit down and you read Achilles, Tatius, and Longinus, and some of these others, you go, oh yeah, this clearly is a story. Uh, it reads a bit quaint compared to the way a lot of our fiction today is written, but it's obviously a story. And it's you know, pirates grab girl, uh, you know, fiance is forlorn. He pursues. He has adventures almost gets killed, there's a shipwreck, on and on it goes, and the story just unfolds. It doesn't read as a series of units that are stitched together. Mm. This happened, and that happened, and then this is reported that so-and-so does this. There's a very different feel and the way history reads, whether it's Suetonius or Tacitus or Matthew or Mark, it has a very different feel. Mm. Well, now some skeptics, though, would doubt the historical accuracy of the Gospels uh, because they're uncertain about who wrote them. So, for example, well-known atheist Matt Dillahunty recently said that we can't trust the Gospels because they're anonymous, none of the Gospels are signed, and they're not likely written by the people attached to them. So is this problematic? No. Um, I, I'd love to sit down and talk with Matt. Uh, the, the, it's the fictional accounts that are signed, the, the uh, gospel accounts aren't signed because they originally circulated. They weren't anonymous. We know that because of what Papias says. Unfortunately, Papias uh, suffers a little bit at the hands of some of the church fathers uh, who quote him, and he was done a terrible disservice by the great historian Eusebius writing in the fourth century. So I can understand why Eusebius throws Papias under the bus. The sad thing is in doing that, he not only damages his credibility, but he obscures Papias's claim to have apostolic tradition. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to go into a whole lot of details on that. But what Papias is talking about when he says Peter spoke and what he spoke was the typical way teachers taught back then, philosophers and teachers, he conveyed the, the story of Jesus as crei, these little anecdotes and that's what the word crea means in the singular. It's a useful story. That is what the word actually means. 
And so he would convey these things and Mark wrote them down. And here's the key thing that scholars only recently are beginning to understand. Uh, Papias says Mark wrote them down, but not in order. And he says that twice. Well, thanks to a, a manuscripts that have been discovered only as recently as 2005 relating to Galen, who was writing also in the second century, he talks about how he wrote his books. And he always says, well, I first start with notes, and they are not in order. They're not ready to be published. They're not ready to be circulated or to be placed in libraries. They have to be put in order. Lucian of Samosata, writing at the same time, late second century, says the same thing. When he talks about how do you write history, well, you talk to uh, eyewitnesses. You gather up notes, and he uses the same language. The notes have no order, but later they're set in order. You polish it up, you give it a nice fancy touch, and then you write a preface. And the preface identifies you as the author and why you wrote it, very much like a modern preface. Galen talks about the same thing. So the Gospels are not notes any longer. They are put in order. Luke says so himself in his opening verses of his gospel. He has discussed these things with eyewitnesses. He's aware of previous sources. He has written an account, and the word he uses is also used by Lucian, and he's put everything in order so that his reader, Theophilus, can get everything straight, know the facts, and it's accurate. So when the gospels originally circulated, there would have been accompanying letters or uh, prefaces that would identify who wrote them, why, and what their purpose is. And I'm confident of that, and other scholars now are seeing that, because there was no dispute as to who wrote them. That's mm. the interesting thing, is uh, the Ma Gospel of Matthew was never called the Gospel of Philip or the Gospel of Nathaniel. It was always Matthew. Mark was always Mark. And by the way, Mark, even though Peter's the voice behind it, if you didn't know, if you were willing to just fictionalize and make things up, call it the Gospel of Peter. Mm. Why Mark? Who's Mark? He has no claim to fame. The mm. Gospel of Luke. Why, if you don't really know who wrote Luke, why select a Gentile, mm. the physician who's mentioned a couple of times in Paul's letters? Why not pick somebody else that's more illustrious? Why not say it's James, the brother of John, son of Zebedee? Why not somebody more impressive? Mm. All yeah. four Gospels never, never by anyone was disputed when they circulated in, in the second and became well known in the second century and beyond. Now, contrast that with the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. We don't know who wrote it. The church fathers did not know. And so you get three or four different names that are proposed. Was it, you know, a, a, Apollos? Was mm. it, well, was it Paul maybe? No, maybe it was Dr. Luke, or maybe it was Barnabas. Mm. And you get these different ideas thrown out. You have nothing like that with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, and, you know, of the four Gospels, if, if the names are being pulled out of a hat, why, why two of them aren't even apostles? Why mm. would you do that if you're just making mm. them up? But contrast this to the works that all scholars recognize as late and pseudepigraphal. That is, they're... They're apocryphal, and the authors are claiming, you know, to be people that they are not. And they embed in the story their identities. 
So these are the secret words which the living Jesus spoke, and Judas Thomas the twin wrote down. I, Peter, you know, on such and such a day, was up on the Mount of Olives, or I, John, was praying and grieving, and suddenly Jesus appeared to me. That's what the fictional stuff does. They feel they have to do that, the authors of the fiction in the second century, in order to compete with the better-known earlier Gospels, whose authorship isn't disputed by anybody. Hmm. And this is what Matt and other skeptics need to know. Right, yeah. So what you're saying there, though, is that means that the authors of the gospel weren't necessarily eyewitnesses. So is that a problem? No, because historians usually weren't. Uh, Historians sometimes were eyewitnesses of part of the story, uh, but they have to, you know, so you could be writing the history of Jesus in the year 35 that early. You'd still have to talk to people who had seen things and knew things that you had not. And so the early church was very focused on the eyewitnesses of the resurrection. That's what it was all about. And it was in the passage of time that there became a greater interest in writing down other things besides simply saying, I saw the risen Lord. There was no shortage of witnesses for the resurrection. And Paul catalogs them himself in a letter he wrote, and he is himself a witness of the risen Jesus. So for the early church, That's what was really important. I'm just glad it occurred to people uh, before waiting too long that it was good to write down things Jesus said and did and put together an ordered account. Uh, And, of course, that's what they did, and that's why we have four Gospels now, all of them written in the first century. So how do we know that they include eyewitness testimony? Well, I I would defer to Richard Bauckham on that uh, in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And, uh, and of course, what you look for for eyewitness testimony are all sorts of incidental details. People remember the names of certain people, and sometimes you get this, you get, you suspect that the name of a person who made a remarkable statement is being withheld uh, to protect him in, a, in a, what could be a sensitive uh, setting where the Christian faith was not only being pressured in the synagogue setting, but increasingly was being viewed as illegal. A lot of people don't realize that uh, the Roman emperors did not like people gathering together. There had to be a good reason for it. And uh, the synagogue had a longstanding law that pertained to Jewish people. But if Christians were kicked out of the synagogue, they technically were not allowed to meet together. And for groups of Christians to meet together once or twice every week, uh, created a lot of suspicion in the in the Roman government. We don't know those stories real well. We just get caught up in all the uh, martyrdom kinds of stories and so on. But Christianity was under pressure from the get-go, especially when Christians felt unwelcome in the synagogue setting and began meeting outside of that context. They were technically, I mean, it's kind of like right now, you know, you go outside, you got to wear a mask, and you, you know, groups aren't, that's what they faced. They weren't allowed mm. to get together uh, they were running the risk of violating the law and, and getting into trouble. So how do we know that these uh, these authors of the Gospels were actually writing history and accurately telling the truth? Well, okay, there's nothing like uh, uh, the proof in the pudding is in the t- tasting. And so if the Gospel writers had it wrong, uh, then it would very quickly show up in two main areas. One of them would be the lack of corroboration. I've already touched on that. And the other one mm-hmm. is in 
verisimilitude. Verisimilitude means it's it's a it's a Latin word. It means something is true. It's similar to the truth. So very is truth, similitude, similarity. And so this is why I was saying earlier that archaeologists want to know uh, sources that that reflect realities, not fantasies, not fiction, not mythology, not old legends. They want to dig up things that they know really are there because that you know you move tons and tons of dirt. I, I've been a a, a a volunteer for archaeology digs, and you cannot believe how many tons of earth a team of 50 people can move in one day and fill up these things called ballots, these big heavy canvas bags with straps. Then a flatbed truck comes with a crane, picks them up, hauls them away. And that's part of the expense of doing this. And, uh, and then the next day we do it again. All these ballots are filled and this stuff has been sifted. And when you're moving tons of, and it can get up to like 30, 40 tons per day, and you do this for two weeks, then a new crew comes in and does it for two more weeks. You don't want to be a fool. And all you've dug, done is dug up the side of a hill, and you don't have a thing to show for it. That'll be the last dig you ever conduct. You will never have <laughs> anyone volunteer for you again. You want to know where you go. And so you need reliable sources. So when I say they have skin in the game, I'm not kidding. And so uh, I've been with archaeologists many times at dig sites. I've heard many papers. I've got books on my shelves. Uh, too. And, and by the way, there's one called Jesus and Archaeology. It's on my shelf, came out a number of years ago. Flip to the back. And you'll see with all the sources that are cited, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts are cited more than 1,000 times. Mm. If those sources were of no value, if they were filled with inaccuracies, mythology, talking about somebody who didn't exist or whatever, they wouldn't be back there. What about these second, third, fourth century gospels Gnostic Gospels, Apocryphal Gospels, only one of them is cited, and that's the Gospel of Thomas, cited about 10 times by one author in the book. And if you look and see what he says, he says Thomas has no value for archaeology. He just cites it as purely a literary work. That's it. To me, that says everything. There are 31 authors, uh, chapter writers, in the book I'm talking about, Jesus and Archaeology. Ten of them are Jewish scholars. Eight of the contributors are professional archaeologists, and they cite Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts hundreds of times, at least a thousand times total in this book. And these apocryphal gospels, with the one exception of Thomas that I mentioned, they ignore. Why? Because they're good archaeologists and know what they're doing. That's why. And they don't, do, they, do they quote any of these other ancient uh, historical fiction novels that were written in the ancient no, world? They, no, no, Achilles, Tatius, Longinus, you know, uh, no, they're, they're, not, uh, they're not cited. Uh, they know the difference between fiction. Uh, in fact, actually, one a classicist, Glenn Bowersock, thinks that the Christian Gospels began to influence uh, Greco-Roman novelists. They found the gospel story fascinating, and one of the things that appeared in some of the novels late first century on into the second century was the idea of going to a tomb and finding it empty and wondering what happened to the recently deceased loved one. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. So the Christian gospel story was clearly being read, and people were interacting with it and found it intriguing. And so Christianity by the second century was influencing culture. Mm. 
Mm, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Now, it's true that we don't have the original manuscripts of the Gospels, but you've done some work in researching the longevity of ancient manuscripts and how long they lasted. So how long did ancient manuscripts last? Uh, hundreds of years, typically. Uh, mm -hmm. if, if a manuscript wasn't destroyed in a fire... But, uh, of course, that was, that was one way a, uh, a text could be destroyed. But uh, the reason we know that uh, the manuscripts uh, existed a long time, it's for two basic reasons. One, people say they did. And so we have the testimony of non-Christians uh, like Galen. Galen happens to mention that he has copies of uh, texts that are 250 years old, 300 years old. Uh, the autographs of of Aristotle, for Pete's sakes, were still in circulation in the first century BC. They were at mm -hmm. least 250 years old. Uh, other writers, uh, ancient Plutarch, uh, Pliny uh, talks about uh, his uh, uncle, Pliny Sr., and the old works he had. So these texts were valuable. They weren't thrown away. The idea that here's a text, well, I mean, we buy a paperback at the airport and we read it on a trip and we're finished with it, we might throw it away. The spine is cracked, pages are falling out. And, uh, and so we can't imagine having a book hundreds of years uh, that we just don't. We're, we're a cheap uh, kind of society, throwaway society. But these documents were expensive to make. They weren't printed, they were handwritten. Each one was costly. And they were either on papyrus or on leather stretched out uh, calf skin that's called parchment. And this these are very durable media, and they last a long time. But not only do the ancients say they lasted a long time, and I can cite lots of testimony, so did the church fathers. Tertullian writing at the end of the second century says Pauline autographs, that is the original letters of Paul, are still available to see. Mm. So he said, you don't have to take my word for it, that the, the heretics have changed the text. Go look at the originals, and he names the places where they are. Now, that might sound like a bit of a puff piece for somebody saying Paul's Romans is 135 years old, but we now know that texts like that, in fact, lasted hundreds of years. How do mm. we know that? That's where archaeology again comes in. Mm. So there's archaeological evidence that shows that books were being read. By the way, go to the Dead, you know, the Dead Sea, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. There were scrolls that were 300 years old and still being read, when Rome destroyed the compound at Qumran there in the Dead Sea, uh, you know, at the time of the Jewish revolt. So there's plenty of archaeological evidence that supports the testimony of church fathers and non-Christians who say that autographs and, and old copies lasted hundreds of years. Mm. Well, we have to pause it there, I'm afraid. But as I hope you've enjoyed part one of our conversation this week on the big question, how historically accurate are the Gospels? Now, the conversation continues next week, but let me leave you with some of the Bible's answer to this big question from the prologue to the Gospel of Luke as he outlines his method in compiling his work from Luke 1, 1 to 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Thanks to our guest today, Professor Craig Evans. 
Enjoy bigger questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash bigger questions.